Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Clementine Delise about her new book, The Metabolic Museum. Clementine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Holiday. I'm delighted to be doing this podcast with you and talking to you and uh, to our listeners about The Metabolic Museum. So I am a curator, but uh, I'm also a professor. I'm Global Humanities Professor in History of Art at the University of Cambridge. And I'm a guest professor at the Frankfurt Städelschule, which is a fine art academy. And I am an associate curator at an institute of contemporary art called KW in Berlin. So I have a lot of affiliations, but I'm effectively a freelance curator. I've always been independent. And uh, I, I guess this is what the book is about. It's really what happens to a curator when after maybe... 25 years of working uh, as an independent curator between different countries in the world with artists, one then decides to take on a, an institution and to change it. So tell me more about how you came to write this book. Well, I, was, uh, I, had, I had been at the museum for five years and I was... I encountered quite a difficult moment where, although the museum was doing really well and I was raising a lot of money, I'd raised a quarter of a million and we'd just opened a show on uh, colonial photography, I didn't, unbeknownst to me, the custodians at the museum were not happy. They had previously evicted or ejected the director that had run the museum for eight years and they were running the same kind of strategy with me so whereas my contract was renewed for a further nine years so a further three years so i would have stayed there in all also eight years uh, i suddenly found out found out to my horror that there was a kind of a lobby against me that had nothing to do with the reality of uh, the reception of my work in Frankfurt or internationally, but was an internal affair to do with a group of uh, employees who had been there for over 30 years and, and were obstreperous, if you like. I realized though very quickly that it also had to do with the fact that I came from a totally different background in anthropology. I mean, I'm a, an artist, I mean, I, I studied contemporary art, so I have a background in contemporary art and curating, and then when I was a student in the 80s, I studied semantic anthropology. Now, semantic anthropology sounds a little bit highfalutin and complex, but it really meant in the 80s that we were looking at the way it, uh, you write effectively. How do you write about another culture? 
where do you place your personality in that writing? You know, very often anthropologists try to be objective and they'll speak about the so-and-so culture and the so-and-so practices of this culture, but you have a hard time finding their subjective position in this relationship to another culture. And in the 80s, you had brilliant people like uh, James Clifford and Paul Rabinow, and there was really a movement to try and be more reflexive. And this movement is where I come from, which is why, in a way, the book is a, a fieldwork book of a museum, of what happens when you change a museum. So I had to leave rather rapidly, I had to leave the museum, and I won't go into detail now because it's not really the point of this discussion, but I took um, the city of Frankfurt to court for unfair dismissal, and I won the court case. And uh, whilst this court case was going on, the, uh, the Institute of Advanced Studies in Berlin, the Wissenschaftskolleg, as it's called, saw what was going on and practically airlifted me out of Frankfurt and gave me a room of my own, to quote Virginia Woolf, and a stipend and said, write your book, write your book. So I began writing it there. And really what I wanted to do was find um, uh, a style that would make the book easy to read and at the same time I wanted to tackle questions around anthropology and ethnographic museums in the 21st century. But what I decided to do in each chapter was to give the reader a sense of why I took a particular decision. Why did I move, why did I set up an apartment, for example, inside the museum? Why was it important to have artists working in the museum? All these questions, I wanted to unpack them and write in something like a diary and um, between a diary and a reflection on this type of activity in a museum today and, there, and thereby to really kind of question what a museum is today. What are the colonial underpinnings of museums? But I really wanted it to be a kind of the book that you read on a long train journey, you know, like you can't put it down kind of thing. And I hope that's one of the um, qualities of the book. I think that's what I've heard anyway. So, you know, I've written it. I can't say whether it's a page turner, but I've heard from many people that it is. And so before we start talking about the contents of the book itself, can you tell us about the title, what you mean by the Metabolic Museum? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I was very aware of the fact that ethnographic museums contain, it's a sort of an unfinished business, isn't it? I mean, when you look at art history museums in Europe or in the States, the majority of the artworks that have been collected have proper provenance. You know who the artist was. Uh, you know, you know vaguely or, or, or in detail where the work was shown before it ended up in the museum that you're in at that moment. But with anthropology and also in Germany, 
there were large-scale ex expeditions, and they went out and they collected masses and masses of material that was brought back. And I had the feeling that this material in the museum was, in a way, very organic. Some of it, quite literally, in the sense that it includes uh, human remains of various kind, from hair to skin, maybe not always human, but or animal. In other words, it had a very organic uh, feel to it. And so I was interested in understanding the museum as a as a metabolism, as something quite organic in itself. And so I was looking at the corpus, the body of a collection, in relation to the body of the visitor, right? The person who comes into this museum is a living, sentient visitor. And to kind of then map the body of the collection, the body of the visitor with the infrastructure of a museum, how one uses this museum, and regard the whole thing as interconnected. So hence the metabolic museum, a museum that is um, that only functions if the parts are working together to produce new knowledge or new experiences or new interpretations. Within the book itself, you have a brief prologue, but then you really start with the manifesto for the Post-Ethnographic Museum, written in 2013. Can you tell us about that? Yes, you know, I, I, um, I've always liked manifestos. And if you have a very short time to speak, for example, at a conference, sometimes you get asked to just speak for seven minutes because it's a panel or what have you. And I realized that actually in a, in a manifesto, you can say a lot. You don't need all the prose, right? You don't need all the, the additional kind of context and the background material to why you're making a statement. You can just line up your thoughts about what you want to do. And also the reason for a manifesto uh, is that you've reached a point or one has reached a point where the prose isn't functioning, where more and more books could come out. But what you really need is a kind of uh, intellectual punch in the face. And that's when you bring the manifesto forward. And so when I came to the museum, and I came in 2010, by 2013, I knew what the museum had to be. It had to be post-ethnographic. It had to be um, collection-centric. In other words, I didn't bring on any exhibitions from the outside. I worked with what we had on site. It had to be, uh, uh, it was a, in a way an ailing institution, a sick institution, rather like a, a sick metabolism. And therefore it made sense to say, well, in order to heal it, in order to remediate, this museum and its collections, we need people from the outside. And that these people from the outside could be visual artists, could be novelists, could be writers, um, could be uh, lawyers, could be people, could be fashion designers, people working in different fields that would bring in new perspectives on the museum. And I first uh, declared the manifesto in New York at the School of Visual Arts 
um, at a conference. And then I wrote another one really pretty much in 2018, I think. That was, that's the last manifesto in the book, the Manifesto for the Rights of Access to Sequestered Collections in Ethno-Colonial Museums. And that one was really, if you like, if the first manifesto about the post-ethnographic museum was really to say, well, what are the basic things? What is the, the shopping list that we need in order to change this highly contentious museum? The, the final manifesto at the end of the book is really about, okay, so you're work, we're working on restitution politics. There's a lot going on to encourage people museum directors all over the world uh, to send material back to where it was removed from. Whether it was plundered is another question, but we can assume that the histories of art and design and engineering and architecture and religion, uh, in fact, the whole world, the worlds, if you like, of these different cultures are sequestered in museums in Europe. And so that if you want to do a decolonial activity uh, around the question of the histories of art and aesthetics of other cultures, then you need rights of access to the collections. And so that manifesto is sort of to say, okay, restitution is vital, but hold on a minute. What's going to happen while it takes place? You know, it, it, it's such a slow process. But in the meantime, surely we have to create new venues, new architectural spaces where we can accommodate students from all the diasporas who want to understand and look at and interpret and give new meanings to these collections. So that's the, the, the reasoning behind the manifesto. I like reading that. Hmm. After the first manifesto, you go into a section called Walking Through, in which you uh, talk about visiting museums and thinking about the role of the body in space, but also shifting the concept about what that body in space does. Could you talk about that? Absolutely. So, I mean, I would have said that 95% of the people listening to this podcast will remember that when they last went into a museum, there were no tables and chairs. There would be tables and chairs in the cafe, uh, but maybe not in the main halls and in the main rooms where the exhibits are. This is a, uh, it's not the norm. It's the norm since the 19th century, uh, beginning of the 19th century, because in the very early forms of the museum, these museums took place in homes. People were invited to someone's home and there they could sit down and, the, you know, the, the, depending on the, the, the wealth and nobility of whomever it was and their curiosity cabinet or, or later their castles or whatever architectural spaces they had, the, the, um, the desire was that you would spend time within this environment, that you could sit down, that maybe you would have a drink, that you would eat something, you would flirt, you would... And I got very interested in the fact that there was so little literature on how we move around museums. And then I began to get very interested in the relationship between the museum and the department store. 
And this is something um, that uh, Saunders has written about. And it's really true that if you think about it, uh, in a department store, you don't have tables and chairs either because um, somebody who's sitting down isn't purchasing anything. And it's a bit like that in the museum today, that there is an, a kind of a, an, uh, an incentive to get as many people through the exhibition as possible. You, were you to sit down on the floor and just spend ages looking at a Van Gogh, you probably would um, attract the security officers who would ask you to leave, right? So this, this to me seemed um, very strange that there should be this kind of ergonomics of the body in museums today that was actually quite contradictory, that you, uh, you would have to walk through a museum and not really um, spend time there or study in it. And so in the, in the approach to the museum that I ran in Frankfurt, I saw that there were three villas, right? That there were actually what I was being given as, as a museum was not a corporate building and a, a piece of architecture that had been purpose built as a museum. It was three homes that people had lived in and that had been built uh, in exactly the same year as the museum itself. Uh, even if the museum didn't begin in these villas, later on in, in the late 60s, it took them over and, and that's how I had to work. So I had to already think about a villa as a very different type of museum. What do you do in a villa? Well, you, you sleep, you eat, you drink, you meet people and you work. And so that's how this whole question of the body began in, or begins in the book with this question of how do we, what, what, what kind of bodily position do we have as visitors? in these uh, large institutions. In the next section, artists and anthropologists, you then talk about your own background in cultural anthropology and the relationship that you saw to art practice and to contemporary art. Yeah, so I studied uh, contemporary art in Vienna in 1978-79, and I probably, wanted to become an artist, but I didn't feel I had enough information. I knew I was very young, I was 18. I, you know, you go to, to school and then you do art classes and you check out if you're talented and if you're not, then you go to art school or, sorry, you are talented, you go to art school. But I felt that art in the late 70s and early 80s required a lot of information to understand what, what artists were doing. And I wondered what I should study in order to better understand contemporary practice. And in Vienna at the time, and I don't think it's just exclusive to Vienna, but certainly in Europe, art history wasn't in line with contemporary art as it is today. So had I studied art history in Vienna, I probably would have studied the Cinquecento or the Renaissance. Or, and it had no, I mean, I would have had to really do a, a leap of faith to try and find the connections. If I studied philosophy, I knew from friends that I would study Hegel and Kant and the great German-Austrian philosophers, and it, it didn't feel right either. And then I realized that a lot of the artists who interested me 
for example, the conceptual artist Joseph Kossuth or Susan Hiller, uh, they had all studied anthropology. And because I come from a very mixed background, my mother was French and my father was Austrian and I was born in London. And I, I liked as a child already moving between cultures, I went and studied anthropology. And I finished um, my PhD back in London at the School of Oriental and African Studies. And I did it on the collecting of the French anthropologists in the 1930s and the dissident surrealist movement. So I already had this kind of analytical background, but because I came out of this post-structuralist semantic moment in British anthropology, I, I didn't accept anthropology as a given. For me, it was always to be questions. It, it was always the handmaiden of colonialism. And um, my, both my art education and my ethno, ethno, ethnological or education and ethnology, both of them were uh, informed by the German, Swiss and Austrian speaking world. It was only later when I went back to London that I realized that there was this other movement called semantic anthropology. So when I came to the museum, uh, I wasn't in the same grid, right? I didn't, you know, today I don't know whether you can speak of it quite as much, but there are schools of anthropology, right? So that the, the historicism of German anthropology and the fact that I was the first person in Germany to take on an ethnographic museum who didn't come out of this historicist movement, this was quite unusual. And uh, I, you know, I, I was interested, however, in the heritage of Frankfurt, and I had read books that had been produced in Frankfurt to do with this kind of new wave of reflexive meta-anthropology in the 80s. I also knew in, uh, that the museum in Frankfurt was exceptional in that it had begun to collect work from Africa, contemporary art from Africa, very early on. And that effectively, the museum had commissioned a Senegalese artist and activist called El Haji Si, S-Y, Sai, I guess you'd say in the States, to create a new collection for the museum of contemporary art. And I had borrowed work from the museum when I did a show called Seven Stories About Modern Art in Africa in 1995 and I had met this artist. So there was a sort of a loop back to why Frankfurt, why not Hamburg or Munich or whatever. I knew that this museum had an, a, a foundation in art, that it had been a forerunner uh, in new acquisitions of contemporary art since 1974. And I think this is remarkable because there was this body, I mean, everything was in boxes. Nobody had looked at it for years and years and years. And um, I managed to uh, employ Yvette Motumba, Afro-German uh, curator and art historian. And she took over the Africa department and analyzed the two and a half thousand works that the museum owned and managed to put names to the works and inventorize this incredible body of, of material. So um, all of this, if you like, allowed me to make a, a really logical and legitimate connection 
in the, muse in the uh, museum in terms of the relationship between visual art and anthropology. So even, you know, the, the, the kind of, there's a polemic which says, oh, artists come into museums and they look at this and they get inspired, like the primitivists, right? Like Picasso, Blamanc, Derain. They see a, a mask in the, in, the, in the flea market. They bring it back. They abstract from it. They appropriate everything that they need. But actually, this museum had gone much, much further. And it had this relationship that I wanted to explore more fully. So that's what I talk about in the in the second um, in the in the second chapter called artists and anthropologists. It's really this relationship between the two fields. You then move into blind spots, thinking about a rift that you saw in Frankfurt between anthropologists at the university and anthropologists at the museum. Yes. Yes, this was very curious. I, I, I wondered, you know, what, what the relationship was because this Museum of Anthropology or of Ethnology, it had scientific pretensions. It was part of what you call in German a Kulturwissenschaftliches Museum. So it was a, a museum of cultural sciences or cultural history. And therefore, uh, the first thing I wanted to do when I met my staff was to ask them about their research. And actually, I changed the, the title, their job title, from curator to research curator, because I really wanted to see how the museum could maybe be 50% research, 50% exhibition making, 50% internal, development of new interpretations around these contentious collections, and 50% public. And so I asked my staff, what, what, you know, do you, do you teach at the university? Do you lecture? Do you have students from the university coming down? And I was surprised to hear how little or how slim this relationship had become. And I realized also that there was a, a kind of a civic question that you can be a professor in a university, but you can't be a professor in a museum. You remain a civil servant. And I think that was a bit like a chip on off the shoulder for a lot of the, the staff, you know, a kind of a, um, a dissatisfaction. The second aspect uh, that might mm, give one a greater understanding of the division between the university and the Museum of Anthropology comes out of the fact that in the 19th century and the early 20th century, cultural anthropologists believed that you could extrapolate knowledge on a culture, an ethnic group, in quotes, a tribe, through objects that objects were like the condensation of cultural identity. And if you could dissect them, so to speak, you could, uh, you could portray the other in a very um, intimate and, and yeah, uh, endogamous way. In other words, from the inside, from, from within. And so they collected vast amounts. These museums in Germany in particular just went out on vast expeditions. They collected in a kind of serial kleptomaniac way. Uh, they didn't just bring one 
bridal headdress back from Papua New Guinea. They brought 50 back. They were swapping between museums. That's how they could develop an encyclopedic um, museum themselves, right? It, it's obvious that if I go to Papua New Guinea and I don't bring you something back, then when you go to the Congo or to another part of Africa and you bring objects back, unless we swap, we will never manage to cover the whole world. So it's an absurd idea. And the, the act of swapping ended in the 80s radically. People realized that this might not be such a good idea. Uh, but something more important happened in the 1950s. And this was when uh, the different schools of anthropology reached a point after the war where this kind of mad uh, bulimic expeditions could no longer take place. It didn't feel right. And you had then great thinkers like Claude Lévi-Strauss who were trying to shift anthropology into cognition, into behavior, into language, and away from the rather, in quotes, frumpy materials that had been brought back and that actually felt like a kind of a testimonial to colonialism rather than something that could be still done. And so he said in a very famous lecture at UNESCO, I think in 1953 or 1954, we don't need this anymore. We need to understand thinking models, languages, behavior, but not keep collecting. And I think that led, if you like, 50 years later to um, a sense of embarrassment on the part of the university a sense of, oh my God, what do we do with all this? Let's carry on. We need to work on other problems like gender, like media dissemination, like, uh, you know, ecology, like all the questions, climate, whatever you like, you know, questions of democracy and the, or medical anthropology and the, the clear connection to the objects in the museum couldn't be found, or at least it was assumed there was no clear connection. Um, so that was that was something that I, I was sad about because I did want to have more relationship to the university than we had at the time. Um, also, I was, uh, I noticed that whereas I had grown up with the development of curatorial studies, which really began in the early 90s in the UK, um, there wasn't really much input on, in terms of curatorial studies, the discourse of being a curator uh, in the museum, that the museums had keepers or custodians, and they were partially anthropologists too, mainly, I mean, they had gone to the different countries or cultures for continents uh, for which they were responsible, you know, the African or let's say the Oceanian custodian had been to Australia and had been to a couple of other places, but they weren't, if you like, in the field intrepid anthropologists who spent years and years and years there. They were much more, um, that's why I say armchair, they had, they had spent a lot of time looking at objects, gathering information and writing monographs or writing interpretive essays on these and doing exhibitions, of course. So I realized there was a, an unfortunate division or cleft between curatorial practice and the keepers. And um, this 
still exists. You know, this is still a problem everywhere uh, that curatorial practice has, you know, diversified, that there are now vast numbers of young curators who all want jobs in museums. And yet you have this uh, landscape of keepers who in many ways hold the keys to this material. And they cannot, in the case of my museum, they had, you know, one curator had maybe 15 to 20,000 objects to look after. So it's, ob it's clear then that they won't know about everything, but they will have their favorites. And each time I would bring an artist into the museum, uh, I could see straight away that they were looking for something that the custodian didn't know anything about. And it wasn't that the custodian showed an artist what they thought was the most exciting. It was more that walking through the stores, somebody would point up to a top shelf and say, what's that? Can we have a look at that? So the, um, yeah, the, 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 what I wanted to do in the museum and what I describe in this chapter is how maybe to move away from the museum as a kind of set design into a museum where new knowledge is being produced and, and on the basis of these collections. And so you then, in the next section, Spatial Taxonomies, talk about the spatial concept that you had for the museum's extension and also some about the history of the space itself. That's right. So I, um, when I got there, when I got the job, I was asked if I knew how to build a new museum. And I said, sure, because I've been working for seven years on something called Future Academy, where we had actually looked at the future of institutions like art academies and what, would, what is needed. And so I said, okay. And there was a rather impressive budget of something like whatever, 60 million euro. Uh, to build a new museum in the park behind the three villas. And so I spent the first year actually just writing the concept for the new museum, working uh, with different members of the city, um, boards of you know, the construction, and trying to work out how best to produce this music, new, new building. But at the same time, I was concerned to renovate the old villas. And the old villas were interesting because they had a history themselves. They had been built for banking families. Frankfurt, you know, banking city, always has been since the Middle Ages, uh, money city. And then in the war, it had become, I think several of them had become orphanages or, or schools, care, care homes. And then um, one of the villas had even belonged to the police um, headquarters of that particular neighborhood of Frankfurt. And you could tell that because they'd changed the window panes and put in frosted glass and what have you, right? But what I came into, especially in the one villa where there was the exhibition space, I saw an appalling condition, you know, um, nasty halogen lights hanging off wires from the ceiling, uh, fake walls. I mean, it seemed as if the curators had uh, tried everything to make these villas anything but a home, anything but a house, anything but a villa. 
and to try and sort of camouflage these villas and make them look more like white cubes or like exhibition spaces. And of course, the result was pretty grim. So we took a year, you know, removing all the excess, renovating the, the wooden uh, staircase and painting the whole thing white. Um, the what I did was I meanwhile all this thing about the, the new building was going on right at the same time but I was very conscious of the dangers of this new building project because it was all in the hands of politicians and magistrates so even if we did do the big competition we had some famous names David Ajay got third place um, and the first place went to some German architects and they had an idea of building a museum underground. Uh, whilst all these debates were going on, I was making sure that I knew what I wanted to do in each of the three villas. So one villa had an exhibition space and it even had a cellar full of 13,000 traditional objects from Africa. The next villa had a library with 50,000 books. Uh, the library was barely open. It opened at 7 o'clock in the morning and shut at 12. Uh, nobody used it. Only the people in the museum used it when they wanted to do some research or the intrepid scholar from some place who knew that there might be a book there. But effectively, it was shut. Uh, in, the same, in that same villa, you had the administrative offices and the curator's offices. And then in the third villa, which had been this police headquarters, there was nothing but boxes and a defunct gallery that had been renovated very badly, but had certain qualities to it. In other words, like it was dark, there were no, were no lights, no windows, and it had floor heating. So I, on the first floor of this, of this police villa, as we used to call it, there was the visual archive. And I realized then that we had 120,000 photographs and films and that I needed to take them down into the basement, which was a much, much better location for an image archive. And in doing that, I released uh, the first floor, I renovated the top floors, and eventually this villa became, if you like, uh, how would I put it? I would say something like a, a, a house in which everything could take place within a 24-hour cycle. So I would invite an artist, they would sleep on the top floor, they would have the next floor down for a studio space, uh, beautiful rooms, empty, just for, with tables and a few chairs. And then the floor below was a laboratory. And below that laboratory in the basement was the archive. And if you were invited as a guest to the museum, you had keys, and you, you could uh, choose what you wanted from the stores, and then you would be able to look at these objects in the laboratory, work on the floor above, and you had like a 24-hour access to what are museum artifacts, collections, in assemblages that you had put together. And this was really, this is what I called in a kind of provocative way, domestic research. So the, the, the Weltkulturen Laboratory was, a, was the heartbeat of this metabolic museum. It really meant that if we began research and invited someone after four weeks in residency, that person 
may have come out up with a the germ of a new idea or the prototype of a of an artwork or um, chapters from a novel and that that in turn would affect how we conceptualize the exhibition that would be produced in a few months from then. And so this kind of question of how, how you work with a collection became very central because when you have a storage space, it's not intended for people to spend hours in. Everything's locked up. And the public space is the exhibition. So you need a third area in between the public and the private to find, you know, to be able to look at objects in a, in a more intimate setting. And that's where the laboratory really had a big effect on what I did. So that archive, you mentioned the image archive. Um, you talk about that within the archival underbelly and also say that you really wanted to problematize that archive and really critically reckon with it. Yes, the, um, so I had a, a staff of 23, of which 20 were women. I would say that half of them were my age, sort of born around 1960, and the other half were young women who I brought into the museum. I wasn't sort of worried about gender, but it just seemed that, and the fact was there were many more educated women in this field in Frankfurt or in Germany than, else, than men. Uh, so I had a lot of young women, and I had one particularly clever visual anthropologist who had been responsible for shifting the archive from the first floor in full daylight down into the basement and reorganizing everything in it. And one day she came across a, a, a group, a, a set of boxes, and we opened it up, and she called me, and she said, Frau Delis, I've just found something rather worrying. Please, can you come over? And we discovered hundreds of photographs that had been taken by the founding director of naked men, uh, front sides and back, uh, but also male genitalia. So to give you the background to this, the founding director, a man called Bernard Hagen, was a doctor. And in the late 19th century, when the European colonies had plantations in Indonesia, he had been sent out as the German doctor to uh, provide medical help for the migrant workers in the fields uh, who were, uh, you know, uh, who were working in the in the tobacco fields in Sumatra. And because they used incredibly noxious fertilizers, a lot of the migrant workers had skin diseases. And so Mr. Hagen, Dr. Hagen, was there to heal them, but he suddenly realized that this was kind of a kind of comparative paradise. He realized that because the migrant workers came from all over the world, you know, from Afghanistan, through to Malaysia, through to Sudan, through to China, through to Afghanistan, that if he photographed these people, he could make a kind of comparative analysis of their bodies, but equally their genitalia. Now, you have to remember that anthropology, being the handmaiden of colonial, 
colonialism was also connected to the development of racist knowledge production and racial theory. And uh, this has been explored increasingly in Germany, but it is a big problem still, you know, to unpack the, the history of, of racism in terms of science and anthropology. And he, we looked at this material and we thought, oh my God, what do we do? What, what are we going to do with the, these photographs? Can we show them? Should we show them? Should we hide them? Should we pretend they didn't exist uh, or don't exist? And, you know, no one had ever seen them before. Effectively, one of the descendants of Mr. Hagen had handed them over to the museum in the 80s, I think, and the custodians had just put them away in a dark cupboard and didn't want to look at them. So I set up a series of seminars which were very, uh, which were held in the laboratory with 20 people each time where and a very good mix of people. So classic anthropologists, of course, the curators of the museum, but equally artists, photographers, um, even a dealer in colonial photography. So we really had a, a wide range of people who could interpret these photographs, but also kind of think about what to do with them. We had people of African descent, of um, Maori descent. So it was, it was a very um, reflexive group. And we decided to show the photographs, but to do it through a form of remediation. And remediation is a concept that has been at the heart of my work for quite a few years now. It, it stems from the late and brilliant anthropologist Paul Rabinow. Paul Rabinow um, had worked with Michel Foucault in the, in the 80s and had become quite an unusual um, restive uh, figure in the world of anthropology in, in America. He taught at Berkeley. And his idea of remediation was twofold, that you recognize a, a deficient situation, a problem that needs healing, hence the word remedy and remediation. But in order to heal it, you need to make some kind of a transfer, a mediation, if you like, into another format, another technology, another time, another interpretation. And so to understand how to show these photographs, we presented them in an exhibition called Foreign Exchange, or the stories you wouldn't tell a stranger, in relation to uh, other artworks that dealt with this question of racism, but also in relation to a text that was written, a kind of an audio book that was written by the Nigerian Irish writer Gabriel Badamosi. So remediation meant that you presented uh, an, a problematic archival set of objects through different channels. And uh, at that point, I realized, oh my God, you know, this museum is so contentious. I'll never come out of it with, you know, a halo on my head. I am also part of the problem, you know, as a, a white European woman, I have to recognize my position in this process. Um, also another reason, you know, why, why I may have uh, taken on this museum to, in a way, push the limits of what you can do with a museum. If I had done the same kind of thing in a museum of contemporary art, it would have been understood and everybody would have said, aha, it's a new model of curating. But to take a museum that has 
is so problematic, that probably the worst kind of museum in the genre of European or American museums that actually still exists in our decolonial world, that was quite unusual. Yeah, that was quite damning in some ways. I want to move ahead a few chapters because I think that you've already talked a bit about some of the artists and about the laboratory, but I think that that connects in a really interesting way to the chapter Models of Inquiry, thinking about the objects themselves and what the the ways of thinking about those objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a, that's um, an interesting moment where uh, I go to West Africa. It's just before I, I take on the museum. And I go with an artist called Antje Majewski. And we go to see a, a, a collective, a group of artists who I worked with for several years, the Laboratory Agit Art. And um, we, we look at, if you like, the... The, the scene in Dakar, Senegal in the 60s and how it might be connected to the museum. And effectively, there was a kind of an anti-psychiatry movement that was taking place in Senegal. And there was a very famous writer from Germany called Hubert Fichte, F-I-C-T-F-I-C-H-T-E, who also went out there and wrote about the different psychiatrists who were trying out different models that had less to do with swallowing pharmaceutica than a kind of a speaking therapy. And um, so I write about this question of of the collective and the fact that I, having, having traveled to 20 countries in Africa in the early 90s, I was particularly fascinated by this collective, the laboratory, because they were disinterested in the market and in the conservation of objects. You know, the question of conservation, preservation of collections is highly ideological because when you have 70,000 objects of which several are similar to others because you've collected in or they've been collected in this kind of serial manner, then um, surely one should can let go of a few and allow students to work with them. And I was uh, not trying to be destructive at all, but I was trying to understand how one could work with a collection in a different way. And I was influenced by the the thinking of the philosopher Issa Samb, late now, he died in 2017, but also by the pretty well-known painter and activist El Hajisi, who had been the first curator, the first curator of African descent who worked on the continent, the first curator in Germany, you know, in the 80s, way before Okwi and Wezor, uh, who everybody quotes as being the first African curator in Europe of great value, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think um, that uh, gives you a sense of, you know, the. Again, because I came out of art practice and the art world, it wasn't that I was just picking up any old artists. I knew who I wanted to work with. There was a strong kind of line of people that 
for me, needed to come from different places, not just from the source community, but equally from Germany, because the museum was, after all, a German museum. So it made sense to have German artists, um, but equally to make sure that there were artists from West Africa, from Latin America, from Oceania, and, and to kind of have a, a panorama of interventions taking place. Towards the end of the book, you have some chapters that are really linked to each other as you try to think through um, collaborative methodologies for thinking about this um, within the context also of the global art market, uh, the different forms of contemporary engagement with research collections from the past, um, and the incompleteness of the ethnological museum all of which uh, the question of restitution is hovering behind all of those. Can you talk about those later chapters? Yes. So, uh, you know, the, the, when you have an ethnographic collection, the question is, well, what do you collect now? Do you still collect? And if you count, if you tot up all the ethnographic museums in Germany, you reach quite a high number. You reach easily three to four to five million artifacts that are hoarded in these museums that people don't see. Uh, restitution has a lot to do with parapolitics, right? It's to do with diplomacy. Uh, since I wrote the book, a lot has happened. A lot has been restituted, but Benin bronzes, for example, they go back to Benin city in Nigeria. The, you know, so there was, the, the question is not, the question is that restitution is absolutely essential, but it only skims the surface and it affects iconic, in quotes, masterpieces that are, are uh, sent back eventually after a long bureaucratic process to the countries of origin. And I kept thinking about, well, how do you, what do you do with this collection that's here in Germany? And restitution in 2010 to 2015, it wasn't a big debate, right? I think we restituted one Maori head, but apart from that, it wasn't in the papers like it, it was after 2017 when Macron went to Ouagadougou and made these big statements on restitution. So uh, I thought, okay, I don't want to buy anything new. I'm not going to go to a department store and, and buy whatever you can buy. I don't, you know. I, it's a cliche to say you go to Africa and you bring back, you know, uh, 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 something made out of Coca-Cola cans because there you have a clash of cultures. All of this was sort of uninteresting. What I did realize was that if I had artists in residency and if they were able to work with the collections and the assemblages that they put together, they may produce or they might produce a prototype and, that I, and so I asked each of these artists to leave something behind for the collection. And sometimes this could be a painting, sometimes it was a concept, sometimes it was a set of drawings, or sometimes in the case of Perks and Minnie, or Pam, the Australian fashion designers, it was an entire collection. Uh, and I remember that it threw up a lot of questions. For example, when you have a collection that's divided according to regions and you have 
a set of prototypes that have been made in relation to an assemblage which has many different things from different parts of the world, the prototype that is given, gifted to the museum, doesn't fit in one regional category. So this raised a lot of questions of expertise. Well, where do we put it? No, it doesn't belong in my area. You know, it doesn't belong in my area either. Another interesting question that came up was, how do you evaluate these objects? Because it's, it was a municipal museum, so at the end of each financial year, I had to get, put together a list of the value of the collection. Now, ethnographic objects do not circulate or hardly circulate. There is an embargo. You can't deaccession collections easily. Therefore, the market in so-called tribal art is quite restricted to whatever you can still get your hands on these days. And it's a little bit like vintage clothing from the 1920s. You want to find a flap address. Well, a hundred years later, the flap addresses are either falling apart or they're in museums. And you, you know, remember when Kim Kardashian wore Marilyn Monroe's dress, a huge outcry. People said, my God, she's ripped it, it's been, damaged, it shouldn't have been lent, all of these kinds of things. So just to give you an idea that with ethnographic objects, there's very little circulation, which means inevitably that we don't really know how much things are valued for. You can look up in an auction catalog, you can talk to a dealer, but the reality is that either these objects are priceless or or they have a very arbitrary figure attached to them. It's, it's very difficult. You have to imagine if something doesn't circulate, then the economic parameters don't really exist. So when it came to, nevertheless, the custodians had, had listed value. I mean, one object was worth, had a value of one euro, was a, a mouth harp, one euro, right? And then a major masterpiece, the beaded, sculpture from Cameroon maybe had something like 90,000 euros on it, but it was all very fuzzy. And so when we started to be given, gifted these prototypes by different artists, the question then became, well, so what do we, how much are they worth? What do I put down as a sum? And this became very, very interesting because did I go back to the gallery and say, okay, so this particular artist, what is their value for this kind of work? A work that is part of a research collection, therefore it's outside of the market. It isn't part of this circulation. I, you know that it's, it's equally segregated or sequestered. And I tried to get this discussion going with the curators, but it didn't lead me very far. And yet, this is exactly the kind of uh, unresolved aspect, the unresolved dimension of, of museum collections and museum practice that is so interesting when you just begin to think of the value of research collections, because they are as good as the research is, they get superseded in time, they get superseded by new developments, and because they don't circulate, they get caught in a kind of limbo. And, and I am very interested in, for example, 
the dormant research collections that you have at university galleries in the States. My book has been um, taken up by Tufts University in Boston, and they are actually doing an exhibition based on the book, influenced by the Metabolic Museum. And I'm going to go there in the spring to have a look at the university collections, because effectively one can do a similar project uh, with these, if you like, latent research collections, where you get the younger generation to qualify them anew, to, to give them new meanings, because the idea that an object is kind of encapsulated in a time period is crazy. You know, we, we, we change our ideas, we, we develop uh, new thoughts and interpretations and meanings. So this was, this was one of the great things. There was another great artist who did a, a very crazy but brilliant project called Luke Willis Thompson, which was about restitution. We had a... Um, I think a head from uh, New Britain, I believe, or New Ireland, I can't quite remember now, basically an island of Papua New Guinea, and it had been made out of a, a human skull. And the performer would bite into a stick at the back of the jaw in order to carry the mask literally against their face. And it is an object that's high on the list of restitution, right? It should be sent back, it's human remains, etc. But what he decided to do was to say, okay, I would like to give my budget for materials, it was about 1,500 euros, to a family or to people in Frankfurt who have just lost a loved one and who need to repatriate the corpse back to that particular country because, as you can imagine, you can't just be buried in Germany if you are a... Uh, an immigrant, or if you're uh, uh, somebody who's, who's, you know, you're, you're on a part-time job in Frankfurt and you die, you can't just find a, a graveyard. Or it, it doesn't work like that. So effectively, he tapped into practices which are under the radar in a city like Frankfurt that have ethical, aesthetic, political, economic ramifications. And in the end, he gave the, the budget to an imam who in turn gave, gave it to a family that remained anonymous. Now, in the exhibition, because let's face it, this is a museum with exhibitions, we had the certificates of the handover of the cash, we had the human skull, we had a set of shackles, slave shackles, that Luke Willis Thompson had also presented as part of his work. And we had very sweet amateur photographs of a young boy who had died uh, in Frankfurt. When the visitors came and they had just walked out of the, the room with the contentious photography I mentioned earlier, then they could walk into this one installation by Luke Willis Thompson and suddenly the whole notion of restitution was on its head, placed on its head because suddenly you had to begin to think about the restitution of the present, the restitution of people who are actually, who have just died, not the human remains from 150 years ago, but this phenomenon that we never speak about of um, these practices that take place in an international city like Frankfurt. So that really was an eye-opener, I think, on the debate of rest around restitution. 
The book then ends with some of your thoughts about the future of the Ethnographic Museum, as well as your ideas about the museum university. Yeah, that's what I'm working on. I have been ever since I left the museum in 2015. I have been working on different models that take what I did in Frankfurt one step further. And so what I called a metabolic museum is now metabolic museum university. And the idea is very simple. You don't need an exam to go to a museum, but you need an exam to get into a university, either as a student or a teacher. You need an exam to go to an arts academy or arts university, either as a student or a teacher. But you don't need one to walk into an exhibition. So for me, the question of the decolonial today um, is tied to a particular imperative, which is for the younger generation to be able to access collections that have a relationship to where they come from. Now, this relationship today is much more heterogeneous than ever before. You can have people who are quarter this, quarter that, half this, you know, they have parents from mixed backgrounds, the parents in turn are from mixed backgrounds. And the possibility of creating a location where young students or students, uh, but also members of the public can, rather than consume in the museum like a department store, can begin to treat it as a space of learning, uh, as a space of the democratic intellect is for me really absolutely central today. I feel that museums have in a way come full circle back to the 1840s, you know, where they were built at the same time as the steamships crossed the Atlantic to the United States of America, at the same time as uh, large hospitals and prisons were built, and of course, museums. And I feel that today there is too much consumerism in museums, too much going on around the shops and the cafes, and too much interior decoration that allows you to have a kind of a feeling of being in a theatrical set rather than in an exhibition. And what I would like would be to um, fill a museum with new kinds of furniture large tables and chairs, technology, of course, but equally mobile furniture that allows you to place certain things together that you can't do in a storage space. You can't do it in the reservoirs of museums because they're not built for that. They're built to store. They're not built to work. And I think that this, um, in, in the US, you have the University Gallery, the University Museum, which is a museum located in the campus that has had a lot to do with the history of the university itself because it was, you know, collections, archaeological collections, fine art collections, anthropology collections that were brought back uh, the end of the 19th, early 20th centuries and became the impetus for a whole new institute, a whole new methodology, a whole new uh, field of knowledge production, a whole new scientific paradigm. And today these museums, not all of them, but some of them have also taken on the consumerist turn, right? And so I would like to see, um, and this isn't a generalization, I think there are many different types of museum, different approaches to museums, but generally speaking, 
today the global museum it still with retains the kind of colonial matrix it's still built in the same way and i feel that we should be more uh more um, what's the word courageous about allowing certain a small, small percentage from the collections to be brought into an environment where the students and the young generation can study. I equally think, though, that people who go to museums who are 70 plus also have the right to be students again, to be the to to renew their knowledge and to sit down in the museum, to take it easy, to read a newspaper. Uh, and so I've been running these models in different places. The first one was in Ukraine where I worked at the Museum of History and uh, we kind of basically filled a table with artifacts that we'd collected from the flea market and held seminars in the museum that visitors took part in. The second one was in uh, Ljubljana in Slovenia where students of mine in design had built metabolic chairs that allowed you to really sit down and had a, you had a table, you had a light, you even had a mini projector, which would allow you then to beam your own image back in between paintings, because the hangs have become so normative today that there's a lot of white space in between two artworks. And then when you get a kid or, or somebody who starts to beam their Instagram post, uh, or their own things that they like, they, it becomes a kind of auto-curatorial model for them. They, can, they become curators. And you know, it's clear that from each corner of each eye, they're taking in the artworks as well. So I like this idea that one begins to think about the furniture in museums. And the last, um, the last kind of phase, or the latest phase, is in Berlin. It was stymied by COVID, as you can imagine. We couldn't get into collections. But again, it's about setting up debating chambers around assemblages of objects that come from very different collections and trying to create a transversal methodology, a new way of interpreting objects which have been forgotten because of the search is over or, or that somehow don't mean so much in their in their in the museum any longer to bring these back up and to put them into conversation with one another, so to speak, and with us at the same time. So there's a sort of a mirroring going on between the heterogeneity of the exhibits that take place in, in one of these debating chambers and the transversality that one is looking for that would be interdisciplinary, decolonial uh, and inclusive. Well, Clementine, we have taken up so much of your time. It sounds like you are taking the ideas that you set out in this book and really pushing them farther and farther in your current work, which is wonderful. Thank you. So, so thank you so much for joining us. It was really such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much, Holiday. Thank you.